Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your great love for us in Jesus Christ and the work that you have done on our behalf. Lord, I just pray for our time now in your word that you would be at work through your Holy Spirit to give us a fresh sense of awe and wonder at what you have done in saving us. And Lord God, that as we look at this text of Scripture today, that it would lead us to praise your glorious grace. We pray for your help to this end because we know that no good will come apart from the work of your Spirit. And so we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to uh, start off just by giving a a quick update. I was down in uh, Tennessee uh, Thursday, Friday, came back uh, yesterday, Saturday, and had some meetings with Mission Eurasia, and we had uh, folks, leaders from uh, Poland, Ukraine, and Moldova who were there with us, and it was just uh, a a genuine privilege and an honor to hear the stories of how God is at work. Uh, These are people who are ministering in some of the most difficult circumstances. Mission Eurasia works in 15 different countries. Three countries that they work in are currently facing war. Ukraine, Armenia, and Israel. But what struck me is how God and his sovereignty is at work through their ministry. I've learned that the church in Ukraine has tripled in size over the last 20 months. So as people fled from churches to escape from war, churches were emptied, and now those churches are full, again, with the people who stayed, who are looking for hope in Christ. Thousands of people have been baptized uh, and have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, This is um, Pastor Michael right here. He is the pastor of the church, uh, the Ukrainian church in Warsaw, where our team went this summer. Super thankful for our work with them. But I want to share one thing that he shared with us. When, when this war first started to break out, he, he and his church leaders, they met and they said, you know what, I think we, we might be able to help 300 refugees. That's what they thought they could do. Well, then they, he met Sergey, partnered with Mission Eurasia with their resources and planning. They have now ministered to 60,000 refugees. They have meetings twice a day to share the gospel. If you want any humanitarian aid, you've got to hear the gospel. If you want food or clothing, they share the gospel. Uh, Their church in Poland has now helped to plant eight other churches across Poland. It's amazing what God is doing. Now, God moved Pastor Michael from Ukraine, he's Ukrainian, moved him to Poland where there was a Ukrainian population five years before the war broke out. Now, there, there was a need for a Ukrainian church in Poland, but I think God and his sovereignty knew that these refugees were going to be flooding across the border, and he put him there in advance in his sovereignty. That is what our God does. He is sovereign over all things and sovereign in salvation. But that's not just happening in other parts of the world. That happens right here in the United States as well. So yesterday morning, we took an Uber from our hotel to the airport. We had about a 40-minute ride. I was riding with Tom here, and his wife, Karen, is over here. Uh, She's from Norway. We're riding in this truck, and it was quite clear that God had literally just taken this man, Arthur, and just plopped him into our lap. 
It wasn't very long before I found myself sharing the gospel with him. So I was thinking, okay, we'll connect him to um, our friends, the Condons, who were there, and he can go to church with them because he didn't want to go alone. Well, then Tom starts to share the gospel with him from the back seat, taking a different angle. And so the ride to the airport, we're sharing the gospel with him, and I get his number, and I say, you know what, I'll connect you with my friends. I get out to get the luggage, but Tom stayed back in the, in the vehicle, and Arthur gave his life to Christ right there. It was totally awesome. Yes, praise God. And pray, pray for Arthur. Pray for him. Pray that he gets connected with our friends. Pray that he gets connected with the church and he can be discipled in his faith. But here's the point of sharing these stories from Mission Eurasia and this story with Arthur. It's to point us to the fact that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation, especially salvation, and that's what we're going to see in our text today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6, and the message for us is this, praise God for his sovereign grace in choosing you to be his holy and beloved child. We're going to see three purposes of God's election, his choice to save this morning, but we're going to focus the lion's share of our time on the first two, as you'll see when we go through our text today. But before we dive into those purposes, we need to see our text in its context. So right after Paul's greeting, he unleashes the longest of all of his doxologies in the New Testament, stretching from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. A doxology is a declaration of praise, of glory to God for who he is, for what he has done. Now look at verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says, blessed be God. In other words, praise be to God. Paul here is not telling us to praise God, at least not directly, indirectly he is. He himself is praising God here. He praises God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, what are those spiritual blessings? That's what we're going to see in verses 4 through 14 over the next few weeks, starting today with verses 3 through 6. Paul is going to unpack the spiritual blessings that he has in mind. But what we need to see here at the beginning is this theme of praise to God for blessing us in Christ. Now, verses 4 through 14 can be split into three parts based on the members of the Trinity. First, God the Father plans and initiates our salvation. That's verses 4 through 6. Second, God the Son purchases our salvation. That's verses 7 through 12. That's our redemption, our forgiveness for sin through Jesus. And third, God the Spirit applies and preserves our salvation. That's verses 13 through 14. But we also see God's saving work, past, present, And future, God planned it before the foundation of the world. God is still saving people through faith in Jesus. And one day we will acquire possession of our inheritance. So this doxology spans from before time into eternity. And it spans all three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together 
to bring about this great salvation. Now, it's supremely fitting for us to praise God for his great blessings, especially in salvation. And verse three is alerting us, it's alerting us to the overall purpose of this doxology and the primary application of it. Praise to God. This is repeated in verse six and verse 12 and verse 14. The goal is the praise of his glory. So as we work through each part of this passage, we need to keep this overall aim in view, seeing the great work of salvation, a work that is planned by God and purchased by the Son and preserved by the Spirit. We praise God for that. Now, all of these blessings come to us in Christ, in Him, and those are not just filler words. This is the central thread of the doxology. We see the words in Christ or in him at least, at least a dozen times in 14 verses. And we see them so much that we risk just reading over them and missing their significance. But all of God's blessings come to us through our union with Christ. That's such a major theme in this doxology and in the letter as a whole that we'll likely do a standalone sermon on that doctrine at some point in our Ephesians series. For now, I just want to note it in passing. The point is this. We must know who we are in Christ if we are going to live faithfully for Christ. That's how this letter is laid out. The first half is all that is true of you in Christ. And the second half, chapters four through six, is how you are to live in light of that truth of who you are in Christ. So with that brief context, let's look at the blessing of our election and all that that entails. First, God chose us in Christ for holiness before him. Purpose number one is your holiness before God. We see this in verse four. But look again at verse three, and then we'll see verse four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The very first spiritual blessing that Paul lists is election. That is how God chose us in Christ for salvation before the foundation of the world. This is one of the clearest proofs of God's grace. Now, election. It is admittedly a difficult doctrine to understand. There is a limit to our understanding. And when we study it, we will inevitably come to the place where we have to admit our limit. Specifically, how God's sovereignty fits together with man's responsibility before God. How those two things fit together is a mystery that we cannot fully resolve. But we don't downplay one or elevate the other. We have to uphold them both and hold them together because the Bible teaches and upholds them both together. How that fits We can't fully resolve. Maybe we'll dig into some of that when we get to verse 11. But Paul's focus in this text is not on the logic of election. 
but on the blessings of election, the glory of election. That's his focus here, so that we praise God for it. So what do we learn about divine election in verse 4? First, that God chose us in Christ. Choosing us in Christ points to our sin and our need for rescue. Sending Jesus to redeem us from our sin was always God's plan A. God didn't look ahead and see who would believe in him and then choose them. Instead, he saw our inability because we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And remember, we saw two weeks ago, what do dead people do? Nothing. Yes, they rot. (laughs) They do nothing. We, as spiritually dead people, do not reach out for the grace of God in Christ apart from the prior work of God in our hearts, drawing us to himself. We would not believe unless God took the initiative to save. Second, we see that God chose us before the foundation of the world. That means before you were made, before your parents were made, before Adam and Eve were made, before anything was made. This highlights God's sovereignty and God's grace in salvation. God's choice was simply his own, not based on anything in us, because it occurred before any humans even existed. I have a a bunch of peanuts in this little Tupperware here. And if I choose this, this peanut, I separate it out from all the other things particularly special about this peanut but simply because I chose it. If you're in Christ, God chose you, so you are special. You are his treasured possession, the recipient of his love and his favor. But this this peanut isn't just special, it's also different simply because I have set it apart from all of the others. As God's chosen people, he has separated you from the rest of the world. Christians are called God's chosen ones, holy, set apart, and beloved, special, Colossians 3.12. This leads to humility because we do not deserve it, and comfort because our salvation depends on God, and praise because we are thankful for it. It's like God choosing Israel out of all the peoples on the earth to be his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 14.2. He didn't choose them because they were more in number or more righteous, but simply because God graciously chose to set his love on them. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, and chapter 9, verse 4. Not for any reason in them. And the exact same thing is true of us. Another example of this is Jacob and Esau. Before they were born, before Jacob and Esau were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob in order that his purpose of election may stand. That is to show that his choice did not depend on their actions, but on his free and sovereign choice, Romans 9, verses 12 through 13. Paul will later say in Romans 11, 5 through 6, which we read a moment ago, talking about the Jews, he says, there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. 
God's election is on the basis of his sovereign grace, not in, in any way based on us or anything in us. <laughs> Simple way to fra- phrase this. God didn't choose you because you're awesome. He chose you because he's awesome. And the ultimate purpose of election is the praise of his glorious grace. That's where we're going to get to in verse 6. So Paul is highlighting here the completely unmerited, gracious nature of God's election. It happened before the creation of the world, before believers could do anything to merit it. Now, one objection to election is that it's not fair. If God elects, then it's not fair to hold the rest accountable for their sin and unbelief. In Romans 9, 14 through 16, Paul addresses the question of whether there is any injustice on God's part because of election. And the answer is, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The point here is that when we're thinking about salvation, thinking in terms of justice and fairness is the wrong category. If we demand what is fair, what we deserve from God, then the only outcome that we will receive is judgment and condemnation because we are all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. We have to understand when we think about this doctrine that God could send every single person on earth to hell And we could not say anything about him being unjust or unfair. He would be perfectly just or fair to do so. The only reason that anyone is saved is because of God's mercy. So as we think about salvation, the right category of thinking is mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16. In the end... We ultimately don't want God to treat us fairly. We want him to be merciful. And that is not something that we can demand or that we deserve. God must choose to bestow his grace. Now, our response to such completely undeserved, unmerited, and and quite frankly, unbelievable grace can only be humility and joy and praise. And that is precisely the point. God's election is the foundation of our salvation. You know, when you build a building, you have to build it on a foundation. If you don't want that building to tip over, if you want it to stand and be secure, you need a foundation. And the bigger the building, the greater the foundation that you need. This is a picture of some of the largest buildings in the world. The one that's off the screen is the Burj Khalifa. You see the Willis Tower here. It's kind of a dwarf now, but the foundation goes 100 feet deep. Well, the church in Ephesians is compared to a building. There is no greater thing that God can build, right? And it needs a solid foundation. It's this group made up of individual people, and we have the deepest and the firmest possible foundation on which our salvation and the church 
rests. The foundation is that God chose us in Christ before he created the world. It is on the doctrine of God's sovereign election that we ground our hope of salvation. And it is as secure and solid as God is powerful and faithful. And God is all powerful and his faithfulness is forever. So your salvation is secure because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. The point of this is that this is meant to be a tremendous comfort and assurance because God who chose you and called you will also keep you to the end. This doctrine is a comfort because your salvation rests on Christ. If it rested on us in any part, if it depended on us, it would be doomed to fail because we are so weak and inconstant in our faith. Amen, somebody. Because it depends wholly on God, it cannot fail. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 To know and feel that God determined to show you mercy, to set his love on you before the foundation of the world, to know that his work of grace is the result of his good pleasure, as we're going to see in the next verse, it's a tremendous comfort and assurance to us. This is what leads us to praise. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. God chose us in Christ, third, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Again, this implies that we're sinners who need to be rescued. God's purpose in election was to make us what we are not. That is holy and blameless before him. That's our need. The only way we can be righteous before God is in Christ. It's the same thing that we talked about before. Luther's burning question, how can sinners be made right before a holy God? The answer is the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the great exchange that we talked about, that God takes our sin and puts it on Christ and kills him for it, and at the same time takes Christ's perfect righteousness and gives it to us. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, see it? In him, union with Christ, it's crucial to all of this. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't die for his sins. He didn't have any sin. He died for ours. We get his perfect righteousness. This is the work that God set out in Christ to accomplish. This is the blessing You cannot appear before God holy and blameless, that is, without guilt before him, any other way than through Christ, through faith in Christ. We're justified, we're counted righteous in Christ. And without that righteousness, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. Now, of course, this does have implications for how we live today which Paul is going to unpack in the second half of his letter. Because we are righteous in Christ, we are to live holy lives. Even though we sin daily, God sees you, beloved, as spotless in Christ. And the goal is that we rejoice in what God has done. Yes, God is going to bring you to holiness. He is going to 
to complete the work that he began in you. God is going to overcome sin in your life because that's what he purposed to do from before creation. So we have assurance, but not license to sin. But in these opening lines, Paul is highlighting God's grace, God's mercy, God's salvation, or sovereignty in salvation. And God's election is the deepest, the firmest foundation for our salvation. It's a blessing. We need to see this as a blessing for which we give thanks and praise to God because it gives us such comfort and assurance. But it also gives us courage. It gives us courage because we know what our destination is. So election now is further defined, which leads us to to point two. God predestined us in Christ for adoption to himself. The second purpose of election here is your adoption unto God. And oh, this is so glorious. I am excited. See this in verse five. Look there with me. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of of his will. The word purpose in ESV, if you're reading in ESV, is better translated good pleasure. Now, Paul could have just said that he predestined us according to his will, but he doesn't. He has this descriptive word, eudikia. It it's, means good pleasure. God did this according to his good, the good pleasure of his will. In other words, This is not just the mechanical choice of an unfeeling God. This is a choice made in joy, in love from an affectionate God. Paul is helping us to see that the love of God the Father is the source and the motive of our salvation in Christ. Now, you and I, we all have desires for the people that we love, the people in our lives that we love and care about, good things that we would like to see happen in their lives. It could be a spouse, it could be a career, it could be success, it could be good health, and certainly we all want the salvation of our loved ones, right? The trouble is, is that we're very limited in our ability to see that these things happen because they're all outside of our control. We don't have this control, but unlike us, God is omnipotent. God is sovereign He has the ability to carry through, to to bring about everything that he desires for those that he loves. And here we see that God's purpose in predestination is our adoption into his family. Predestination means to decide in advance, to determine in advance, to foreordain, to predestine. Now, you know what the word destination means. When you take a trip, like I did this week, going to Tennessee, and you go online to book your flights if you're flying somewhere, what does the airline obviously need to know? They need to know what is your destination? Where are you going? What predestination means is that our destination has been decided in advance. When? As we've seen, God predestined us before the foundation of the world. And the destination that God planned was for our adoption as sons. God in his grace planned, determined to graciously adopt you into his family and to prepare a place for you in heaven. Now, that truth is difficult to understand 
but it's extraordinary. It gives us such reason to rejoice. Jesus will say this. Jesus will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. You see, in Christ, oh, God takes his enemies, rebels, those who are steadfastly opposed to him and who hate him. And he makes them citizens of his kingdom. And he makes them servants of the king. And Jesus goes so far as to say that he makes you his friend, John 15, 15. But he goes so far beyond that. We used to be sons of disobedience and children of wrath, Ephesians 2, but now we are God's sons and heirs. Do do you see, God could, he didn't have to adopt you. He could have just forgiven you in Jesus Christ. He could have made you righteous in Christ and just made you his servants and stopped at that. But he doesn't stop there. God in his abundant love and his good pleasure, he makes us his children. He takes his bitter enemies, his sinful, these sinful traitors, and he makes us his sons and daughters. It is shocking. It is wonderful. It should fill us with awe at what God has done. God has determined to adopt us to himself, his children with all the blessings that it entails. This word adoption Weothasia, it's rarely used, only five times in the New Testament, all of which by Paul, all in the context of Gentiles. So it's rare in the Bible, but it was commonly known in the Greco-Roman world. It referred to this legal practice where a, a father would adopt a son and, and he would become his heir. Adoption was there to pass on his name and his inheritance. Perhaps the most famous example is when Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. So the ESV says, God predestined us for adoption as sons. That's because it involved taking on a name and becoming an heir and receiving an inheritance. So just like all Christians are called the bride of Christ, even though we're, we're men and women, we're all the bride, So here we see that all of God's people are sons of God. Men and women, we're all sons because it involves this inheritance, becoming an heir. Adoption is significant then and now because it gives all the rights and privileges of natural children. It also meant cutting off old ties and starting a new life, just as Christians are separated from our old way of life to live a new one in Christ. This is the word that Paul uses to describe what God has done for us in Christ. Now, Paul would have also had in mind the Old Testament idea of Israel as God's son. Deuteronomy 14.1, Isaiah 1.2, Isaiah 39, Hosea 1.10 and 11.1. Listen to Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out and out of Egypt, I called my son. See, this picture of God choosing his son out of Egypt 
is the same picture that we have in Christ. Only their rebellion ruined that relationship, but the prophets looked ahead to a day when that relationship would be restored, and Paul is showing us that that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, my wife, Sarah, she was adopted from Colombia. Her parents were moved by love to pursue adoption. Now, when you go through the adoption process, there comes a point when you learn, you, you know the child who is going to be your own, even before you get to bring them home. So Sarah's parents had her picture and her name, this precious little girl, and they prayed for her, and they prepared a room for her, and they stored up all the things that she would, would need when they brought her home, preparing to receive this sweet little baby that they loved from a distance. Sarah was in Columbia and then in Florida for a time. And as a baby, she was totally unaware of their love that was moving them to adopt her into their family, unaware of all of the blessings that they had stored up for her. She would learn of them later. Now, of course, there were costs to pay and obstacles to overcome for her parents. And they did out of love for her. And eventually, they brought her home full of joy. And I've seen the pictures. They are literally smiling from ear to ear. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But as wonderful as that is, it is merely a dim picture of what God in Christ has done for us in welcoming us into his family adopting us as his own. Think of the distance that separated us from a holy God. Think of the cost that he had to pay, the obstacles that God overcome, paying for our sin at the price of the precious blood of his only son, bringing us from spiritual death to life, preparing all of these rich blessings for us and storing them up in advance, all before we were even born all before the foundation of the world. What can we do but rejoice and give thanks and praise, loving our Father in heaven and living to honor him? So what we learn about election here is this second purpose that God predestined us for adoption into his family. You're his beloved child. He is your father. And that comes with so many blessings. We enjoy God's favor and free access to God in prayer, confidence in prayer that he's gonna care for us. We come to God in prayer saying, our father who art in heaven. Second, our adoption assures us that God loves us. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, 1 John 3, 1. If you ever doubt God loves you, know that he adopted you into his family. It assures us that God will care for us and provide for us. Jesus said, if you who are evil <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, hey, if you wicked, evil people know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who seek him, Matthew 7, 11. And chiefly, the chief gift that he gives us is the Holy Spirit to convict and counsel and comfort and encourage us, Luke eleven thirteen, 13. The Spirit empowers us for Christian living and serving God. Another privilege of adoption is that the Spirit sanctifies us, leading us to kill sin. 
Paul says this in Romans, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is not saying the spirit leading you to know which school to go to or leading you to know who you're supposed to marry. This is very specific. It is the ground. It is the spirit leading you to put to death sin in your life. So there are these two proofs of whether or not you're God's son. One is the fruit of the spirit, but the other is the fight of the spirit, the fight to put sin to death in your life. If you see that fight, that is evidence that you are the son of God. Our adoption means that God lovingly disciplines us to train us in righteousness. I know that might not at first seem like a blessing, but it is because God disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in our holiness. Think about what happens to our children if we let them go their own way, let them do anything that they want to do. What is the end? In the same way, God doesn't let us go our own way or do whatever we want to do. Out of love, he disciplines us and it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Another blessing is our inheritance in heaven. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. This is probably one of the ones that we think of first, and it's glorious. God has this inheritance for you. He's keeping it in heaven for you right now. You're his heir. You have an inheritance. It's amazing. Finally, there's these horizontal blessings. We have a spiritual family with brothers and sisters in Christ. We have their love and care and encouragement, and they need love and care from us as well. And what is the point of listing these things? It's not so that you can furiously write them down on your notes. It's to give you a sense of what God has done for you so that it will lead you to awe, to praise God for what he has done. It's absolutely overwhelming. Guys, he doesn't have to do this for us. This is all his free grace, and that is where it is leading. It is all for the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse six. This is the end. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The ultimate purpose of God's election is the praise of his glorious grace, which is literally God graced us with his grace, all for his glory. We're gonna see it again and again as we go through this text. You see, it pleased God to choose a people for himself as his treasured possession, setting his love on them before the foundation of the world, all so that we would praise his glorious grace. This is the ultimate purpose of God's plan of salvation. Do you see, God had a higher goal in mind than just your blessing. His glory his praise. So Paul praises God for the blessings that we have. The first on the list is election. 
You see, apart from Jesus Christ, we might find various blessings, but they're all going to be worldly blessings. We might obtain all that the world has to offer, wealth, power, success, pleasure, but we'll know nothing of God's spiritual blessings apart from faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to see these blessings as Paul lays them out so that you will rejoice, so that you will praise God that your salvation will not be something that you yawn over, that you praise God over again and again and again because it's so overwhelming. His grace is so overwhelming. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done. We thank you for our election, our predestination to adoption as your beloved children. It's overwhelming, God. Lord, would you help us to be captured by what you have done? Would you lead us to praise? Would you anchor us in these truths? Would you give us comfort and assurance from them? Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your sovereign grace, choosing us to be your holy and beloved children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.